Every election cycle that comes along, I think we all have high hopes that someone will fill an office to fix our problems. And boy, every election cycle we have problems, right? And so the, the candidates stream across a stage and they begin to tell us how they're going to fix the problems. And the problems could include everything from threats to the U.S., from North Korea, and uh, you name it, uh, just the, the latest thing that's propping up on the horizon. And of course, we know terrorism is a huge problem. We just had another incident in New York um, that's just tragic. And so uh, questions like this, questions about the borders, questions about you know, safety and that kind of thing. And so the candidates come up, and of course we're concerned about taxes as well. Anybody concerned about taxes out there? And so we hear them you know, give their spiel about how they're going to fix everything. And then the country casts their votes with the hope that someone will be our champion. Someone will fix our problems. Someone will help us get to where we need to be. The Bible paints a picture in the kingdom of God. And we've been looking at the kingdom of God as a theme as we look at uh, the book of 2 Samuel. And the kingdom of God is captured in a man in the Old Testament, a man that prefigures Jesus, and his name is David. Now, he is a shadow of Jesus. He is not the perfect shadow, though. David had issues and problems. He was a man. But he rose as a leader that God would bless and use to bless the nation of Israel. The promises were largely realized under King David. In fact, uh, Old Testament scholars would tell you that the golden years for Israel were under the reign of David and Solomon. Those were the best years for Israel. But they were years that had to be dealt with with a good amount of struggle and pain. David's personal struggle and pain and then the nation's personal struggle and pain. When David was being uh, identified by God in 1 Samuel 16, if you look at verse 18 with me, uh, here's what's happening. One of the young men, 1618 of 1 Samuel, answered and said, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who was a skillful musician. Uh, Paul shared this verse with us at the men's breakfast yesterday. He is a mighty man of valor, 1 Samuel 16, 18. A mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul, the king at the time, sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the flock. Two things that you'll note about David. One, he is a mighty man of valor. David was a warrior. Two, in verse 19, notice that he was with the flock. David was also a shepherd. David was a shepherd warrior. They almost seem mutually exclusive because when we think of a shepherd, we think of a, a kind, gentle overseer of a flock. But a shepherd has another role, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, that is to protect the flock from wolves in sheep's clothing, from predators. In fact, sheep are the most helpless of all animals and apparently the most stupid. And of course, you all know that we've been compared to sheep in the Bible, but we won't go there this morning. But we're in desperate need of a shepherd for multiple reasons. We're in desperate need of a shepherd because we can be like sheep who just wander aimlessly. 
And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. If you turn all the way to Revelation 19, before we go to 2 Samuel, I want to show you something about Jesus. And if you've been with us as we've gone through Revelation on Wednesday nights, you've been seeing this. And this is the reality of what the Bible teaches about God's nature. God is loving. He is love, but he's also holy and just. And at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11, we get a picture of Jesus as a warrior. John writes, I saw heaven opened, Revelation 19, 11, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And his eyes, Revelation 19, 12, are like a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, Revelation 19, 14, which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress wine of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. What's the name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, if you go back to 2 Samuel 8 for a second, and this is where we'll park, you'll, you're going to note something, and, and it is this. Before we get to a beautiful chapter about the kindness of this king with one called Mephibosheth, we're going to see the warrior side of this king. David does not perfectly foreshadow the Messiah, but he does in part. And before we are going to have a millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the thousand-year reign, which the Jews would refer to as a coming golden age, almost like uh, was under David, there is going to be a time of war on this planet. And when God comes, when Jesus comes in the second coming, it's called the day of the Lord. And within that day, it's not a literal 24-hour day, but it is his day, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will rescue his bride, but he will also pour out his wrath. Now, this is something that much of the modern church, or at least modern audiences that go to church, don't want to hear about. They don't want to hear about the wrath of God. But you cannot read your Bible without running into the fact that God has wrath. And there is not going to be a golden age. There is not going to be a time of peace until the Lord first deals with his enemies. And God's going to give every opportunity. In fact, in Revelation 14, we see angels even flying in the midheaven telling people, don't take the mark of the beast, warning them that if they do, they will drink the wrath of God in full measure. They will drink that cup. But remember, Jesus drank that cup for us. He's not willing that any perish, but what? All come to repentance. God is patient. He's not slow about his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient toward us because he's not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. But there is going to be a time that comes when God will judge the world and he will have a righteous standard. That's when we want to be found in Jesus. Amen? Amen. So in 2 Samuel 8, we're going to see David as he begins to expand the borders of the kingdom. As we approach Christmas, it's unbelievable that we're around the corner from Christmas, but here's what Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. 
The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now you've heard that verse many times, haven't you? Did you hear verse seven? It says, he will establish this kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness. One thing that you need to know about God and you need to put this into your equation as you think about the nature of God is that God is love, but he is also just. God is benevolent, but he is also holy. And he says, I will be treated as holy. We even see when the ark was being moved, we looked at an earlier account where someone tried to steady the ark and he was killed on the spot by God because they were moving the ark in the wrong way. We need to realize something about God's nature. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, as David is going to walk in these promises, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it says, It came about, 2 Samuel 7, 1, when the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. That's 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now, I told you that when we get into chapter 8, we are not necessarily dealing with a chronological order. We are dealing with something that is more thematic. In other words, 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, when God had given uh, Israel and David rest on all sides from all enemies, was realized probably later in David's life. Chapter 8 is going to tell us a little bit about the struggle to realize peace. You live in a country right now let me just remind you, that was really uh, purchased with the blood of many people. The, the wars that have been fought over the years, our military people, we could argue about the right and wrongness of each war, but people shed their blood that you might be free. I know a young man who used to call me from Afghanistan, and he, was, he did two tours there. And I asked him how he was doing, and he was meeting with the chaplain and stuff, and he would call me for prayer. And he said his favorite verse was, no greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he was willing to die for this nation and to die for our freedom. And so sometimes in our everyday life, we forget that people paid the ultimate sacrifice for you to be in a country that is free. And there is always going to be a struggle for freedom. There's always going to be enemies of what's right and true and just. And it's going to be a battle. Now, today in the church, we don't fight with physical weapons. We are in a spiritual battle, right? And we have the armor of God, but it's not physical weapons. It's things that are given to us spiritually to battle. But the analogies still hold. The, the struggle is still true for us as Christians today. The Christian life is not easy. To do the right thing is not easy. So here is how David had to realize the peace. And this is 2 Samuel 8, verse 1. It says, now after this, and I believe, again, we have to think thematically, not necessarily strictly chronologically. It came about that David defeated the Philistines. We're going to see David move in four different directions. You could imagine just a cross for a second. 
And he's going to move in four different geographic directions. First, he's going to deal with enemies in the west, the Philistines, largely on the coastal plain. David defeated the Philistines, just mark in your margin there, west, and subdued them. David took control of the chief city. Uh, some of your versions say Mepheg Amah from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines were a constant thorn in the side of Israel. And just a side note, Mevek Amah literally means the bridle of the mother city. And most believe, if you take the cross reference of 1 Chronicles 18, verse 1, that it's the city of Gath, the main city of the five of the Philistines. The Philistines were constantly attacking Israel. Uh, if you do a concordant search in 1 and 2 Samuel, just search how many times the Philistines come up. And it seems like at every time the Israelis turned around, the Philistines were attacking. At one point, the Philistines even steal the Ark of God. They steal the Ark of the Covenant. And so they were a thorn in Israel's side, and uh, Saul tried to deal with them, and he had some victories over them, and Israel had some victories and losses. There were casualties on both sides. But finally, David has uh, subdued them. Verse 1. He took control of the city, probably of Gath, from the hand of the Philistines. Finally, the Philistines were conquered. They come up in the book of Judges as well. Uh, we often see the Philistines in a single individual named Goliath, right? Goliath was taunting the uh, armies of Israel. Nobody wanted to fight him except, who was it? Young David. And he hit him right between the eyes. Down went Goliath, right? And so we talk about giants in our life and difficulties, and David went after the giant. And finally, the Philistines were subdued. He defeated in the east, if you're uh, just marking the geographic locations of the taking the promised land, he defeated Moab in the east. And this is going to be brutal, but here it is. Measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death, one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Now, as uh, war went on, and you have to see this in the context of war, and I know it's a brutal thing to, to see, but here's what it is. They would take who they didn't kill in battle and sometimes lay them on the ground and measure them out. The measuring line could be two purposes. One, to measure the height and to spare young ones. Or it was simply... If you were in the one-third, you were spared. And I will warn parents that some of this is some mature content. If you, if you want the heads up right now, I should have said that at the beginning. But anyway, this is, this is what it is. So, and uh, some were spared and others were killed. And so the Moabites who survived this were bringing David tribute. I will say this to you. The Bible does not comment on the right and wrongness of David's actions. This is just the reality of war. And you had to deal with the enemy, and some of the enemy could be taken captive, but it was usually limited numbers and numbers that you could control. And uh, I will also say a spiritual application is that at the end of the age, there are going to be two lines. There's going to be those who are in the kingdom and those who are not. There's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff. This is just the reality. Which line are you going to be in when it's all said and done? 
There are going to be some to whom Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And there will be others that he says to them, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I, what? Never knew you. So here's the reality of what the Bible teaches. There is a heaven to gain by the grace of God and a hell to shun. Calvin captures the tone of the text when he says, The stringency which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be just the just judgment of God, since they had abused his long patience and had mocked him. The Moabites were also a constant problem. If you write down 2 Kings 13, 20, when Elisha died, they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land of Israel in the spring of the year. Seems every spring they would come and they would do more and more damage, the Moabites. Now, I will say this. In David's own lineage, there was a Moabitess whose name was Ruth. And if you write down Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, you'll see that a Moabitess was in the line of King David. So it is interesting that even enemies can become right with God. Now, David defeated, verse 3, Hadaditsar. That's, we're now going north. The son of Rehob, the son of the Rehob king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, all animal lovers are now going to be offended as well. <laughs> To hamstring a horse was not to kill it, but to cut a tendon in the back legs to make it unusable in battle. And this would be like if you had to deal with the military and you had to somehow make sure that their weapons would not be used against you. You might disable their tanks. It's that kind of thing. The king was also told in Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 through 20, he was not to multiply horses to himself or wives. David did not multiply horses to himself. But he did multiply wives. And so did Solomon. And so you ask the question, well, why did God say this to the king? Way back in Deuteronomy, under the leadership of Moses, there was no king at the time. Why this warning? Because God knew that if they had a multitude of horses, they would trust in horses and chariots instead of the Lord. So sometimes what God does is he makes us stay at a place where we have a healthy reliance upon him. He knows which of us can handle a lot of possessions and which of us need to live lean and mean. Amen? I mean, we, we make declarations like, if I won the lotto, the first things that I would do, I would pay off the church. Praise God. I pray you win the lotto if that's your true desire. I want that in writing, though. Right? And I would help this, and I would help the Sisters of Mercy, and I would help this, right? But you know what? Money and possessions have corrupted many, many people. In fact, those who want to get rich, 1 Timothy 6, get themselves into trouble and often pierce themselves through with many a pang, many foolish desires. So we have to be careful. So David captured 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. That's obviously some big numbers. He disabled the horses 
And he did this to a man named Hadadetzer. Ironically, his name means Hadad is my help. You say, well, who's Hadad? Hadad was the personal name of an ancient pagan deity. He was the storm god whose name means the one who smashes. Well, the one who smashes apparently was on vacation that day. Because Hadadetzer got taken by the true god. And David, of course, won that battle. And when the Arameans, some of your versions say the Syrians in verse 5 of Damascus, located immediately north of Israel, came to help Hadadetzar. So they heard that he was battling with uh, David, king of Zobah. David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped or literally saved David wherever he went. So David now moving up to the north and taking the original promised borders that were given way back to Abraham as he was told to walk the land. And the land of Israel, by the way, is a very expansive original promise that was given. And more and more through the political tension around Israel, they are squeezing the borders. But the original biblical borders were quite expansive. And in fact, they are realized under David's leadership. David, verse 7, took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem, now his capital city. So he took the shields of gold. They were probably more for uh, purposes of showing who they belonged to, and he took them to Jerusalem. And from Batah and Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze, now, when Toy, he was the first action figure in history, by the way. What? Might be pronounced Toy, but I like Toy. I like toys. Anyway, King of Hamath, that's about 100 miles north of Damascus. So further north, D Damascus in Syria, then you're going more north. Heard that David had defeated the army of Hadadetzer. Toy, or Toy, sent Joram... To this, uh, his son to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadetzar and defeated him. For Hadadetzar had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. If something like this, let me shake your hand. Thank you for defeating my enemy. I've been at war with these people, and David helped out, and so they brought him articles of silver, gold, and bronze. And King David also, verse 11, dedicated these to the Lord. Key phrase, he dedicated them. With the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. From Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek. Uh, note that the Amalekites were a big problem for Israel as well. Something Saul failed to do, by the way. From the spoil of Hadadetzer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Now David upon winning all of these wars, took, um, like Israel had done to Egypt as they walked out with the gold and so forth, took them and dedicated them to the Lord. What do you think they were dedicated for? What was David's dream? To build the temple. And David did everything but build that temple. He collected the gold and the silver and the bronze he drew up the plans. He even scheduled the workers. But Solomon actually would build the temple. But David did everything next to building it. And this is how a lot of the materials were gathered for Solomon's temple through David's victories. 
First Kings 7, 51 says, Thus all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. First Kings 7, 51. And Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils. And he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And so David made a name for himself. And when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans, again, we're dealing with war, in the Valley of Salt, that may be near the Sea of Salt or the Dead Sea, he put garrisons in Edom. Now we're talking about the south. In all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. Now Edom comes from Esau. Probably the closest familial relationship here. But remember, we were told uh, in the book of Genesis that the uh, older would what? Serve the younger. And now this is being realized as Edom comes under the uh, rulership of Israel under King David. So the Edomites also did their share of damage. You might remember there was an Edomite named Dog who killed many of the uh, Jewish priests in 1 Samuel under the direction of Saul. And he was really a, a brutal individual. Now I want to show you Psalm 60. If you turn to your right for a second, Psalm 60. This is a recapturing of some of the battles that David faced and specifically what we just read about. I want you to see the nature of the struggle. Uh, don't have in your mind that David just walked into these places and won battles without struggles and casualties and difficulties. See the heading of Psalm 60. It says, For the choir director, according to Shushan Eduth, a mictum of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Nahrim and with Aram Zobah. And Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, it would appear that as David was battling another group in the north, he was attacked from the south. And here's what Psalm 60 says. O God, thou hast rejected us. Thou hast broken us. Thou hast become angry. O restore us. Thou hast made the land quake. Thou hast split it open. Heal its breaches, for it totters. Thou hast made thy people experience hardship. Thou hast given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Thou hast given a banner to those who fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Selah, that means pause. Think about it. That thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exult. I will portion out Shechem. Measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, verse 7, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Has not thou thyself, O God, rejected us? Will thou not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly. And it is he who will tread down our adversaries. Turn back to 2 Samuel. So you can see the struggle as David records um, things that they went through as a nation. I will say this to you. The chains of justice sometimes grind slowly. Each of these nations attacked Israel, some of them on multiple occasions. And what happened was, finally God says, we're going to remember what Amalek did to the stragglers when we we're going out of Egypt. We're going to remember what Moab did when the uh, king tried to curse Israel. 
and tried to get Balaam to curse them. We're going to remember what Edom did. We're going to remember. And just because the, the justice is not poured out immediately on a person or on a nation, God is like an elephant. He never forgets. Now, he does choose to forget our sins and our iniquities when we what? Trust in Jesus. He remembers them no more. Now, God doesn't unlearn things, but he chooses not to hold them against us. And so David, 2 Samuel 8, 15, reigned over all Israel. David administered justice and righteousness, something that we see in Revelation that Jesus does for all his people. This is when David now is finally realizing the peace on all sides. It was not without a struggle. And quickly, here's his cabinet. Joab, verse 16, the son of Zuariah, was over the army. We've seen Joab before. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulud, was the recorder, likely a person of high rank. Zadok, 17, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, I didn't practice these names, I should have this week, were priests. And that guy, also known as Shiva, was the secretary. And Benaiah, which means the Lord builds or the Lord prevails, the son of Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and Pelethites. They may have been bodyguards for David. And David's sons were chief ministers. Some of them say priests, unlikely. They were probably more chief ministers. The conquering leader, the one who administers justice and righteousness, one day he will rule with a rod of iron. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. This is, this is how God is. He loves justice, but he also loves loving kindness and mercy. And we're going to see now in chapter 9, the loving kindness and mercy of King David. So let's pick it up. 2 Samuel 9, look at verse 1. Then David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? That's the Hebrew word hased. We've seen that many times in Hosea and in this book. For Jonathan's sake, is there anyone that I could be kind to for the sake of Jonathan? The word hased, kindness there, means mercy and protection. It speaks of loyal love, of a covenant. It refers, one writer says, to extraordinary acts of kindness, meeting an extreme need outside the normal run of perceived duty, arising from personal affection and, or pure goodness. The relationship between Jonathan and David was one of brotherly kindness. In fact, they had made a covenant with one another. Second Peter 1, verse 7 says, In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. If you have these qualities, if they're yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Are you kind? Would it be said of you that you're a kind person? Kindness, by the way, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Goodness, kindness. And when you are kind to someone, it often becomes a doorway for the gospel. You just show somebody kindness and they say, why did you do that for me? What's, what's your motive? And you just say, I have no motive other than to show you kindness and the kindness that I've realized in Jesus. So the question comes from the king. When the king asks the question, everybody's listening, right? Who can we show kindness to? Is there anybody left, right? 
Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul, verse 2, whose name was Zebra. He was an ancient referee uh, for football. Oh, it's not Zebra. I'm sorry. It's Zeba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Zeba? And he said, I am your servant. So all of a sudden, this man, Zeba, is found and called in. Notice in verse 2, he's a servant of the house of Saul. Many believe he was an estate manager for Saul. Saul, of course, is dead. And the king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Notice, I want to show them God's kindness. And Zeba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Now, if you remember in chapter 4, we got the backstory of a young man named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth may mean uh, breath of shame or shameful breath. So try not to call anybody Mephibosheth around you because, or offer them a tic-tac if you, anyway. And so he says, yeah, there is someone and he's a son of Jonathan. Jonathan died in that battle as well. And he's crippled in both his feet. And here's the backstory. When the word came that Saul and Jonathan and Saul's sons were killed on the battlefield, the nurse for Mephibosheth, and he was five years old at the time, heard the news and thought that whoever had conquered the king and his sons would come to kill the remaining son. So she quickly tried to run out of the house with Mephibosheth and she dropped him and he became, remember, lame in both of his feet. He was disabled. And so it would appear that from this time, when he was five until now, he's now 21 years old. He has his own son and he's probably been in hiding this whole time. Remember, he was only five when Jonathan perished and Saul perished. Grandpa would have told really bad stories about David because grandpa was jealous of David and wanted to kill him. Jonathan would have told really positive state, uh, stories about David. But remember, when they die, Mephibosheth is five. How much do you remember from when you were five. Now, some of you have recollections from when you were two. I don't know how you do that. I was in my crib and there was the little dangly animals going around and around. And I was, <laughs> I don't have any memories like that. How many of you have a memory from when you were five? Oh my goodness, you, you guys are smart. Anyway, so you might have some selective memories. I don't know that Mephibosheth had anything but maybe some mental images. I don't know if he remembered anything. I don't know what he knew about David, but David had become the king of the nation. What do you think he might have been thinking? I need to stay in hiding because usually when kings rose to the throne, they got rid of all claimants to the throne. And so he was likely in hiding. He was crippled. And the king said to him, to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba, who probably was supposed to be protecting him, said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, in Lodabar. By the way, Lodabar, end of verse 4, means a barren, empty, and lifeless place. He's out in this place called Lodabar, and uh, he exposes his location. King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, from Lodabar. Now, here you are, you're crippled Mephibosheth. You've probably been in hiding from King David. You know how ancient dynasties used to deal with any potential uh, 
you know, person who could, could be an adversary of the throne. And all of a sudden they come and pick you up to bring you to King David to stand before the king. I don't know how long the ride was, but I'm sure it was a bumpy and nervous ride because he didn't know what to expect. And we do know that David was a warrior and David was not afraid to take care of business when he needed to. And so here he comes. This location of Lodabar may be near a place we've looked at in the past called Mahanaim on the other side of the Jordan. And so he lived in a barren place. Some say it was a town of forgotten people, a place to just go and escape. And there he gets news that David is looking for him. He gets picked up in the stretch limo. There's some <laughs> characters with dark sunglasses on. The king wants to see you. And you go, okay, here we go. You know, in Luke 15, Jesus told three parables about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And here's what he said. He said, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture? Go after the one which he has lost until he finds it. When he, found, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, verse 6, the son of Saul, Saul was his grandpa, came to David. And he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. Now remember, he's a crippled man. What did it take for him to get on his face before the king? I'm sure it was difficult. Maybe he was in agony. But he was thinking, I'm going to get as low as I can get before the king because I don't know what's going to happen. And he prostrated himself before the king. And the king called him by name. He called him Mephibosheth. There he fell on his face, the crippled, wondering what David was going to do. And David said to him, do not fear. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Now you have to imagine Mephibosheth going, praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, king. Can somebody help me up here, right? All of a sudden, David speaks words of kindness eases his fears and says, I'm going to show you kindness because of your dad. You see, some years ago, I made a covenant with your father and I promised that I would do good to his kin and I intend to make good on that promise. And from a barren place and hiding, not knowing what to expect, here is Mephibosheth and he prostrated himself again and he said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Why are you having mercy on me? You know, in the ancient world, a dead dog was about the worst thing that you could come across. He said, I'm a dead dog. Don't even bother with me. And in the story of David, he even said something similar to Saul. Why are you bothering with a dead dog like me, like a, like a flea? And the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. You shall bring, verse 10, the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. 
Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. By the way, that was a great privilege and honor. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. He wasn't hurting. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Uh, You see, David did not execute Mephibosheth. He adopted him. He didn't get rid of him. He brought him into his family because he had made a covenant. And you and I are in a covenant, a new covenant. But spiritually speaking, we are crippled. We're spiritually paralyzed. We're like dead dogs. We have shameful breath. You can add that in if you want to. Here's the picture of us without Christ under the judgment of God because of sin, because the wages of sin is death. And Luke 15 paints a picture of a God who searches the landscape to show kindness and benevolence to. And he says, I've got a lost coin or a lost sheep or a lost son, and I'm going to go get it. And the lost son, when he was coming home, thought, man, I'm going to tell my father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. But no, the father had been scanning the horizon for this son. And when he came, he put a robe on him, a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, killed the fatted calf and said, this son of mine was dead and he is what? Alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Jesus says they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Do you know that one day you're going to be at God's table? One day you're going to be in the kingdom of God hanging out for some dinner with Moses, Elijah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, Adam. Uh, we won't go there. Right? We all want to talk to Adam and Eve, just at least for five minutes, right? In a private corner somewhere. What were you thinking? You had it all. Anyway. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. But he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Can I talk about you for a second? So this is Jamie, and uh, Jamie is a wonderful sister in Christ, spiritual daughter to me. And uh, this, just within this last week or so, we had to do another service for one of her siblings. And, and her household and her mom and dad have gone through some very difficult times. And here's what makes this very special is Larry and Michelle have opened up their home to many uh, disabled young people and adults. And this is what they do. It's really a ministry. And they adopted Jamie some years ago and others. And Jamie at um, the service for Brian was talking about how those adoption papers mean the world to these kids because, you know, sometimes they feel like they don't have a home and Larry and Michelle have given them a home. So Jamie bravely got up to speak at her brother's memorial service. And this is 
I think the third or fourth time that I've been out to do a service, third time. And uh, you bravely spoke. And I went up after Jamie and said these words. And she said, she told me the other night she was a little shocked by what I said, but I told her that I said from the front that she's taught me more about what it means to follow the Lord than a lot of people that I've come across, perhaps most people, because she models faith from her chair and she has joy and she wants to follow Jesus. And uh, anyway, Jamie, we just want to say we love you. But it's not just Jamie, because there's Linda back there who models her faith, and there's Barb, and there's Lucy, and there's others. And I know you guys have physical challenges, uh, unlike what most of us could ever even know. But you guys teach us a lot about faith. And uh, we just wanted to honor you with that. Well, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, 12. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He now left Lodabar and he now is in Jerusalem living there where the king does. For he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both of his feet. I, I would be remiss also not to mention Jim, who's now gone home to be with the Lord, who was faithful to come to church through his physical struggles and, uh, and many others. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see a spiritual picture. And as it is today, we are at a communion Sunday. So we're about all to come to the Lord's table. And we're gonna partake of something that we do quite regularly as Christians. We come and we take a piece of matzah and we take some grape juice and we remember a king that was willing to give himself for us. And with all that this chapter is filled with, both the drama of war and the kindness and benevolence of a king, here's what we need to remember. The king of the universe, who David foreshadows, was willing to lay down his life for you and for me. In fact, the Bible says he died while we were yet enemies. He died when we were helpless. He laid down his life for people who were mocking him and crucifying him. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So remember, that's the king that when you come to his table and you've come into a relationship with him, that's the king that you serve. A king full of hesed, full of loving kindness that the psalmist says is better than life. And instead of him pouring his wrath out on me and you, he took the wrath himself at the cross. And he took the nails, and it wasn't nails that held him to the cross, it was love that he has for you and for me. And so I know this, this section of the Bible can be kind of tough. But in the end, what we need to remember is that we have a king who is willing to lay down his life for you and for me. That's where he won the battle. And he says, the battle belongs to me. Rest yourself in me. Man, I look at my spiritual life before coming to Christ, feeble, without strength, helpless, in many ways a dead dog. And Jesus came and got me. You know, I wasn't looking for Jesus when I first started hearing about the gospel. It seemed like Christians were looking for me. Can anybody relate to that? 
I started to meet Christians in different places. In fact, I was playing on a slow-pitch softball team filled with Christians. And they just kept inviting me to go to church. You got to come to church. You got to come to church. You got to come to church. See, Jesus came looking for me. And he is looking for you too. If you're a believer, you're already found. Praise God. And you stand in the victory. But if you don't know Jesus yet, may I encourage you, make sure you know him. I look around this room and I know most of you personally, at least on some level. But if there's anybody here, if you have any doubt about your salvation in Christ, make sure that you know him. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. You are good. Thank you that you are our champion, our warrior. But thank you that you are so benevolent and kind. And thank you through the new covenant in Jesus, we have life. And that can't be taken away because it was paid for in full at the cross by our champion who willingly laid down his life because he is the one who it could be said, no greater love is there than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And you did. You laid down your life on that cross for us. We know that you despise the shame, but you did it for love and you did it for the joy of bringing many into your kingdom, including all of those who are called by your name that are here. When we come to this table, Lord, let us never forget what you went through, what you suffered, the enemies that you had to face of sin and death, and you conquered them at the cross. And if there's anyone here who's not sure they know you, I pray that they'll be sure, they'll believe in your death and resurrection and Trust in the greater David, the King of kings and Lord of lords for their salvation. May you touch those at your table who need a touch. May you assure them of their hope and the goodness and kindness that you've poured out to them in Jesus Christ. May you, Father, be glorified in this church and in all that we do and all that we say. As the elements come out, Go, go around, Lord. May you, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's one more I want to highlight. And this is Sheila down at the front. And Don and Sheila, we met how many years ago? 13 years ago. And let me say this. I know as much as you both can get here, if it's physically possible for you to get here, you do. And Sheila, I will tell you this, you are an inspiration to us as well. We love you. We thank you for your, your faith and your perseverance. I know sometimes you're even struggling with your oxygen tank and making sure that the flow is good, but you are a woman of faith. And Dawn, I know that you... Uh, you faithfully show up here and do what you're supposed to do and love your wife well. And we just wanted to honor you both as well. We love you. God bless you guys.